Let's uh, go ahead and read James 1.12 together. This is what it says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or change, or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And that is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage, this is our now third week in the book of James. This letter written by Jesus' brother. Um, it is written to the uh, dispersed church, and it is written for us today. So the first week, two weeks ago, Pastor Scott taught on consider it all joy when we face trials. That was our first week, and that was the what we are to do. This entire book is about trials. And what you're going to see is as we continue through James for the rest of this calendar year, um, you're going to see the book of James is really pertinent for our lives right here and right now. I think 2020 might be the year of the trial, right? Can I get an amen on that one? Um, it's the, you know, so this idea that there's these trials coming, there's these things happening to us that are outside of our control is very fitting. And as we continue on through the book of James, it's not all just trials. There's a lot more that speaks to us right here and right now. So I'm looking forward to it. So that first one was the what. It was really, this is what we need to do. Last week, we saw the how, and that was ask for wisdom. God wants to give you wisdom to understand what's going on. This week, we get to deal with the question that every single parent has heard from their kids and every single teacher and every single grandparent, and that is the question, why? That question, why? Why should we do this? Why should we trust God? Why should we ask for wisdom? And so James is going to deal with that. This is a foundational teaching. It's saying, this is why you can trust God. And so, as we have seen before, um, these, these trials are the focus, and we're going to now dig into that. But the very first verse we've got to look at is the one right from the middle. Now, I told you guys this last week, James has a unique way of arguing. What he likes to do is he likes to put part of his argument here, and part of his argument here, and he has his conclusion right in the middle. I don't know if that's if he's just worried that you're going to see the first argument and tune out or if it's just the way he thinks. But the way he thinks for this section is verse 16. Verse 16 is the focus and where he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And what we're going to see in this passage is there's a couple different deceptions he's dealing with. One is dealing with what God does through trials and the other is whether or not God is trustworthy. And so he doesn't want us to be deceived. We are not to be deceived. We are going to face trials. What do we do with that? And so this foundation will help us do what he encouraged us to do last week, which is to be single-minded, to not be moved all over the place, to be steadfast when we put our faith and our trust in God. 
So our main idea, if you're writing it down or if you just want to know, is Christians should not respond to trials or temptations by blaming God, but acknowledging that He is the unchanging source of all good things. So this idea is we have these external trials and they're going to they're gonna hit us. What do we do in response? Do we persevere? If we do, we're blessed. If we allow ourselves to get seduced by a temptation, we are going to then lead, those temptations are going to lead to sin. And we only have ourselves to blame. So there's really three parts to this. The first part is the idea that we can be tested by the Lord. The second one is we are not going to be tempted by the Lord. And the third one is the Lord is trustworthy. So let's dig into these together. So verse 12, blessed is the man. Now don't get hung up on that. That's not a sexist term. It means blessed is the human. Blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, not to, not to get too much into review, but this is the continuation of a thought began in verses 2, 3, and 4. So, I know that was a couple weeks ago, and you know, two weeks ago, and 2020 is like seven years ago, and so two weeks ago, that sermon might be out of your head. So, we're going to do a little review, but it, it ties to today really perfectly. So, verses 2, 3, and 4, they'll be up on the screen here behind me, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials, meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's a progression here, right? And this is the kind of the progression of trials. First of all, the trial hits. That then tests our faith. We then are steadfast in our faith. And from there, we get the three results. We see the perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Well, verse 12 says, not only will you be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, but you'll also get this crown of life. This crown of life. And it's the completed story. The crown of life is going to represent eternal life. And we'll get into that in a minute. But when you look at verse 12, blessed is the man who receives, who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to who? We would think, based on this verse, that it should say to the one who was steadfast. But instead, James throws in this new word, which has not been in the book of James yet. It's the word love. Well, where does that come in? Why is that there? Well, you see, it goes right back to verse 3. The testing of your faith. Now see, we talked about how our, our definition of faith is usually kind of wrong. It's like this, this, this you know, Christianometer, when you have enough faith, all of a sudden you can do amazing things. Or it's, I put my faith into God way back here. No, faith is the living out the certainty that God exists. Faith is the faithfulness in response to God's faithfulness. And so that's where this word love comes in. Love and faith are synonymous they're the same idea here. When you are faithful, you are loving. When you are loving, you are faithful. It's the two combined. So when you live out the certainty that God is faithful, you love him. When you live out the certainty that God loves you, you're faithful. They go together. And so it's a cool picture that we get to see this. Because ultimately, you can believe in God and trust him as your savior 
but not love him. You can submit to God and say, I'm a servant of God and not love him. But loving God is essential to be faithful. Loving God is essential to trusting him. And so that's why we can say that steadfastness of your faith under trials wins the crown of life because the crown of life is promised to those who love and love and faith implicitly go together. Don't trust my word on it. Let's look at what the Bible says. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is saying, if you love him, that's the outcome, that's the obtaining, that's the faith. They're together. And James is not going to leave us hanging here. He's going to tell us why we should love God, along with the fact that it's faithful response to his faithfulness. So now we return to verse 12. The first word there is blessed. This is not uh, a word that is the same as happiness. And there were a couple translations that tried to use that word there. See, the thing is, happiness is a state of emotional being, whereas blessedness is a state of fact. If you're blessed, you can be sad. If you're blessed, you can be happy. But you're still blessed whether, you, whether you're happy or sad. And so it's not a feeling. This is not a feeling word. It's not like, I feel happy, therefore I'm okay. Instead, it's I'm blessed no matter what my feelings are in response. Blessed is the one who passes this test, steadfast under trial. This is victoriously surviving our trials and giving God the glory. I see that with Job when we studied Job recently. I'm currently reading it in my private, my quiet time, and I'm reading through Job, and Job's just getting hammered, and yet he's persevering. Perseverance is the key. And James ultimately has two things in mind here. One, he has perseverance to life now and perseverance to life to come. See, that crown of life is not just a, you get that at the end of time, it's a, you get that here and now. And when we think of crown, don't think of, you know, the, the, the Burger King crowns, right? Definitely don't think of paper ones, but don't think of the golden ones. These are the winner's wreaths that they would wear. A few years ago, we had the Olympics in Greece, and they put these little laurel wreaths on their heads, right? That's the traditional, you just won. It's like the old version of getting the gold medal. You got that wreath, that crown. Revelation 2.10 uses this same word. John writes, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, same word as trial. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So again, this crowns are all throughout the Bible, especially in the epistles, in those letters. We see it five times, including James. We see 1 Corinthians, it says the incorruptible crown. We see in 1 Thessalonians, the crown of rejoicing. In uh, 2 Timothy, the crown of righteousness. And in 1 Peter, the crown of glory. Now, it's easy for us to think, oh, this is for the varsity Christians. These are for the, the stud saint Christians that have done something amazing. I won't get that. But that's not what this means. In the context of every single one of these, this is a metaphor. It's an illustration of what it means to have eternal life. It's a gift. So every single believer, every single Christian who is a disciple of Christ when they die, will receive the crown of life. 
And it says, in verse 12, it says, he promised to those who love him. Well, where is that promise, right? When you see things like that, you go, well, where in the Bible does it say that we are promised this? And one commentator said, don't even try to find it. Well, that's not good. Is it not in the Bible? No, it's in the Bible so often, you can't narrow it down to which single time James is referencing. See, the Bible is, throughout the Bible, eternal life is promised. Throughout the Bible, there is reward promised. And and this is what James is doing there. He's encouraging us to look forward to the reward of the steadfastness of our faith. And when we look at it, this idea of reward, we kind of have a hard time with. We get this idea that we should be altruistic and that I'm just going to be good because it's right and I'm not going to be worried about reward. We feel like it's like mercenary or something to be able to do that, except for the Bible does it throughout. The Bible says, think about the reward of heaven. Think about the reward of eternal life. Think about that. And I think where we get a little mixed up in this is we get our kind of Looney Tunes cartoon version of what heaven's going to be like where everybody would love it. One commentator wrote and said, heaven is a place where the rewards only appeal to those who are followers of Jesus, to only those who are believers. Because otherwise, it's just this random physical thing, and instead, this is promised relationship, promised time with the Lord. That's what heaven is, and that's what heaven is promising for each and every one of us. So it takes us back to that love for God. The love for God should be our chief characteristic and the one that we want more than anything else. So that's verse 12. So that's our first point, is that trials come from the Lord. That's kind of finishing up James' thoughts that he started in verse 2. Now in verse 13, James is going to show us how to use wisdom. Remember, he, asked, he told us to ask for it back in verse 5. He said, ask for wisdom. God will give it to you. And now James is going to be part of the conduit by which we're going to get some of that wisdom. But we have a problem here. The problem is, is that in the Greek, the word tempt and the word trial are the exact same word. So in verses 2 through 4 and in verse 12, when it says trials may come, that means a time where your faith is going to get tested. Right here in verse 13, it talks about tempting. It comes from that same word, that same root idea. So is James confused and he's like forgetting what he wrote a few minutes before? Or is there something else that's at, that's at work here? Because sometimes when a trial comes, something bad happens in your life. Instead of turning to God, you turn to something else. Like we saw last week when we talked about being double-minded, hedging your bets, right? Bad times come and you trust in your 401k and God. You trust in, you know, going and buying and splurging on Prime Day and, and God. You, you have those others with it. Sometimes the other is a sin. We turn to sinful things. We give in to temptation. Well, didn't God cause the trial? So isn't he also causing the temptation? Well, that's what James wants to deal with here. And he's going to answer that with an emphatic no. God did not send the temptation. He sent the trial, but then we went after the temptation. Look at what verse 13 says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I love this this, this look at James' heart here. He's a pastor at heart. He wants to care for his flock. He says, I don't want you to be confused here. When a trial happens and you're tempted to sin and you give into it, that's not from God. 
Our world kind of wants us to believe that. Oh, well, something bad happened. It's from God, so you better just give in. That's not what James is allowing us to do. See, throughout the Bible, there were people that were tested. Abraham is tested in Genesis 22. The nation of Israel is tested in Judges 22. Hezekiah is tested in 2 Chronicles, and it says God is testing them. Hebrews tells us that God tests us. He disciplines us because we are his children, Hebrews, 13, or Hebrews 12. So this testing comes, something happens in our life that we don't like, and usually right at the door is a temptation to turn to something other than God. Financial difficulties. We, tempt, we are tempted to not trust God, that he's in charge. A loved one dies. We are tempted to question God's love for us. We see injustice in the world, in our lives. We suffer injustice, and we go, God, you're not just. That's the temptation. So the way to understand how these two kind of track next to each other is verses 2, and four, two 3, and 4 are the good response to trials, and verses 13, 14, and 15 are the bad responses to trials. In the same set of circumstances, but these are the options we have with every trial. The first one is to see it as, oh, God is testing me. This is an opportunity for me to grow and be steadfast in my faith and trust of him, to produce perseverance and maturity. And that's the wisdom he gives us. The other option is the 13, 14, and 15. And that's when something bad happens, and instead of turning to God, I turn to my flesh and my desires, and that leads to sin. See, ultimately, we need to learn how to endure our trials for the glory of God and not give in to temptation. Because, like I said, temptation is right there at the door. Wisdom is saying, my identity is found in Christ and Christ alone. My hope is in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what I'm going to pursue. One commentator said that every single circumstance in our lives is either to strengthen our trust in Christ or to solicit us to choose something else. And that is all of the Christian life. And, and, and sadly, we give in to those temptations at times. But God's purpose, his, he purposes trials to occur, and when it happens, he, allow, he helps us endure it. He helps us find a way through it. He doesn't help us find a way through it like, like what we do a lot of times, like this verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He'll also provide a way of escape and that you can endure it. We look at it and we're like, oh, I'm over here and I'm getting tempted and oh, there's a light, I'm gonna go this way, right? No, what, what, what this means in, in context in 1 Corinthians is when temptation comes, he provides himself to grab onto. Because remember, we are like the waves tossed to and fro. We have nothing firm to stand on unless we're standing on him, we're standing in him. And so this, this being able to endure it, this way of escape, is grabbing on to your Lord and Savior, not some other means by which to do it. So in every trial, we have escape or we have give in. We have escape and trust the Lord or we give in and it becomes a temptation and it moves on from there. And James ultimately holds up a mirror and he says, the problem is not God. It's problem's not the trial. The problem is you. That's terrible news, because I'm stuck with me, and so are you. You're stuck with you. So how do we deal with this? What do we, how do we make sense of this? So verse 14, 
This is the life cycle of sin, if you will. He's going to explain to us how sin happens in our lives. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So the first thing we see with this is that this luring and enticing is by you. It's by your own desires. So you have something that you want, you want it more than you want the Lord, and you go running after it. He uses two words, luring and enticing. When I hear lure, I think fishing lure, but that's actually not what this word means in the Greek. What this word means is it's like the big hunk of meat held up for the big game, you know, like the tiger, and the tiger comes and goes to get it and then falls into a trap. And so it's, it's a big temptation. And then this enticing is actually more like our fishing lures, where it looks really nice, but it's got a hook embedded in it. And because some of your translations may say something like, you're dragged off, this idea of being dragged off. So I, you can picture Satan as he puts this hook in front of us with something on it that we want. And when we bite down, we are hooked, and he can take us wherever he wants. There's nothing more vivid and more terrifying than that picture when it comes to how the enemy uses it against us. See, we have strong desires, and our strong desires are to enjoy and to fulfill the things of our flesh. We want to feed our flesh. We want our fallen nature to be satisfied, but it will never be satisfied. So we see this word desire here. Uh, This word desire in the Bible usually means evil desire, and what that is is that is any longing for something that is improper or longing for something at its improper time. So this is ultimately choosing something when you're not supposed to have it or something that's not good for you. It's going a direction opposite of the way it's supposed to. And the reason we put evil in front of that is because our desires, we have lots of desires that are natural and they're okay. If I'm hungry, right, then fulfilling that, God gave me that desire to be hungry. But when I start fulfilling that more than I'm supposed to, at some point it becomes gluttony. Wanting to be financially secure can become greed. Attraction to someone can become lust, and so on. You can see how every single good desire can at some point, when you go the wrong direction, become an evil desire. Notice that the Greek, it says here, I'm sorry, not the Greek, it says your own desire. What that means is every single one of us has certain things that get us. And we have all sorts of things in our lives that kind of point us and make our desires go that way. Sometimes we have inherited tendencies. Sometimes we have environments that we're in. Other times we have upbringings. And then lastly, we have personal choices. See, what our world does is our world says, yeah, your personal choice, yeah, but those other ones are what are causing you to do it. You were brought up this way. If only you'd been brought up that way. If you had had this, you wouldn't have been like that. And it gives you all these excuses. Someone else is always to blame. It's never my own fault, according to this world. But ultimately, we cannot blame our upbringing. We cannot blame our country. We cannot blame our friends, our family, our lack of this or that. We have to see that it is us that is the problem. Remember last week when we talked about the poor man and the temptation of if onlyism. If only I was richer, I could be a better Christian. And the rich person is saying, well, I have all this stuff, but I, I, I'm gonna be, my humiliation is what matters. You see, the, the thing is, is that we are forgetting what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 7. Now, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the guy who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. 
So he's way up here. We're all not even in the same ballpark. And he writes, For I know that nothing good dwells within me. Oh, really? Nothing good dwells in him? That means there ain't nothing good in me by far. He says, For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. The person who wrote the most books in the New Testament says, I can't do it in my flesh. I will fail. I am rotten to the core. So what hope do any of us have apart from Christ? We have none. And so we may want to blame our environment. We may want to blame the way we were raised. We may want to blame whatever. But ultimately, our sin is on us. Our temptations are are on us if we give in to them. But there's a place here for us to be a community and work together. And that is, you all are dealing with different temptations than I am. The things that are big temptations for me are going to be different than you. And instead of looking down on and going, oh, you have that temptation. I don't have that. Well, over here, I have one that you would go, oh, really? You? Really? We need to understand that where we are weak, there is a believer, a fellow brother and sister in Christ who's strong, and we need to work together to be able to do this. We need to work together to build each other up. No matter how little a sin is in our lives, it should not be toyed with. No matter how small it is. Oh, it's just a fill-in-the-blank. Sin is sin, and sin kills it's just a little, little temptation. It's no big deal. I can give in to it. It won't affect anything. Well, James knows this because look at verse 15. He says, then the desire, okay, the desire that you've given into, the temptation that you're going, oh, it's no big deal. When it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is the full life cycle. You've got a mutant, three mutant generations, Mutant as in this is not the way the Lord had planned it, but our sin has mutated it. So we have this mother, and she is evil desire. And then we have the daughter, and she is sin. And then we have the granddaughter, which is death. Because see, when you feed sin, it grows. Simple as that. You may be like, oh, it's just a little sin. Yeah, but the more, more you give it, the more of your time, it grows and grows and grows. Because see, sin is a process. It's not an accident. It's not a, oops, I sinned. I didn't even know. It didn't just happen. I always love it. You know, I'd, I'd hear people say something like, I accidentally got my girlfriend pregnant. Oh, yeah? You were walking and you went, oh, she's pregnant now. No, that's not the way it works. It's choices that lead to a situation and then it happens. The same thing goes for sin in our lives. And see, this is where I get it wrong as a parent. And I'm probably the only one in the room, but if you can sympathize, I get this. Sometimes I get angry at my kids when they make a mistake and they, you know, they spill something. And it's not because they're like balancing it on their finger or some insanity like that, but they're just kids and they're clumsy, right? I have a junior hire at home. He's growing and so he's going to be tripping and stuff like that. You don't punish a kid and ground them because they spilled some food. But that's kind of like what we want it to be with God. We want it to be, oh, well, that was just a mistake and so it's no big deal. But that's not what sin is, and that's not the picture that James lays out for us. James says sin is not accidents, but it's, it's willful disobedience of God. It's willfully saying, I'm not going to do what you say. 
And when you feed that sin, it grows. And when you don't feed it, it starves. So here's the, here's the, the, the life cycle. We see a desire. And at some point, that desire through disobedience becomes an evil desire. And then that evil desire, it says, it, when it fully grown. How do you grow something? You feed it. So this is not, oh, I sinned and I'm going to die immediately. This is saying, I sinned and I stay in my sin and I stay in my sin and I stay in my sin and I'm going to die from it. And so this is the picture of that being lured away and then it conceives and becomes evil and then that evil, when it's fed, kills you. This growth and reproduction that James, this metaphor that he's given us, is not just the big major sins, it's the small ones, right? Because it's growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We need to make sure we understand that's how sin works. So how do we stop the life cycle? How do we kill it? And the answer is, it's a very church answer, but it's the right answer, and that is repent. Repentance is you're putting your foot in the ground and I'm not going that direction again. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to go a different direction. Many people think that what repentance is, is is saying, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. Or I'm sorry I broke the rules. I won't do it again. And really, that's not it. Repentance is repugnance You see that sin as what it is. It's death, and you run to the Lord, and you grab onto him for dear life. Because when you grab onto him, you starve the sin, and the sin will die. The sin will go where it belongs. It belongs to be dead. Now, it will kick and scream, and it will come after you, but you're holding on to your Savior. And he's a shepherd with a big rod, and that sin stands no chance. But here's the thing. This may mean that those sins that are in your life that you've been feeding, it may mean you may need to do something radical. You may need to fully cut off that sin. It may be you may need to get rid of your smartphone. It may be you need to cut off internet access. It may be that you stop using social media, stop watching certain movies, cancel your Netflix or whatever streaming service. It may be that you say, I'm not listening to that kind of music. It may be, I have some friends, and you know what, right now, they're pulling me down. I'm not lifting them up. I need to distance myself from them. But ultimately, I am not the Holy Spirit, and it's not my job to convict you of that. That's for him to do on you. But be ready that that sin, is going, if it's got its tendrils into you, and you've been feeding it, it's a big sin. And it's got its hooks in you. But you've got a bigger Savior. You've got a bigger God. Run to him. Turn to him. One of the early church reformers during the the Protestant Reformation said all of the Christian life is repentance. And what that means is you're constantly having to turn away from the things that you're tempted to go after. Why? Because your flesh is lured. Your flesh is enticed constantly, whether you're in trial or not. Grab on to your Savior. So we get now to verse 16. Do not be deceived. Do not be misled. Do not make a mistake, my beloved brothers. So the first mistake that he was talking about was thinking God's leading you to temptation. That's the first mistake. The second mistake is what we're going to see in verses 17 and 18, which is this God is not good. This God does not give me good things. Instead, he's going to say this God only gives good things. 
So now we hit our third point, trustworthiness of our Lord. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I love this section, verses 17 and 18. It says, here are God's gifts, here is God, and here is the best gift. And so I love that picture of these adequate, complete, and beneficial gifts that he gives us. So when it says every good gift and every perfect gift, these two descriptions are really important for us. The first one, good. Good means generous. It means expensive. This means if he had a bank, he broke it. He's giving you a great gift. And you're going, wow, really? But I'm this, and you gave me that. What? And then the second one, perfect, means it's perfect for you. It's perfect for you. You know when you get that gift, when you go, ah, that's the thing I've always wanted that I didn't even know, and it's amazing. Like yesterday when I was given a bike, I didn't even know I needed one, but I got one, and it's amazing. A perfect gift. And then we see not only that, but we see this this one who gives the gifts. It says he's the father of lights. Psalm 136, to him who made the great lights, for his love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his love endures forever. And the moon and stars to rule the night, his love endures forever. Psalm 74, yours is the day, yours is also the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. These lights that this father of light are the heavenly bodies. Just like today, back in the day, they would look to the stars to try to understand what was going to happen. And what James is saying is, you can look at the stars and they're constantly in movement. They're all over the place. But we have a God who put them there and he does not move. He does not change. Romans 1.20 says, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in all the things that have been made. So this God is not only the father of the lights, he's the father of everything. The word we use for that is immutable, which means does not change. Where do we see that in the Bible? We see that in Malachi 3. It says the Lord does not change. doesn't get much simpler than that. Hebrews says Jesus doesn't change. That's why we can sing the songs we just did. And we're going to sing another one about it, that Jesus is ours forevermore. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God does not change. And he gives great gifts, perfect gifts. So now James has to choose how he's going to explain this. Remember, he's a pastor. He's a teacher. He wants us to get it. So in verse 18, he tells us the best gift. Now, he could have chosen anything. He could have chosen sunrises and sunsets. Some days we get to see those here in Oregon, right? A new baby, love, chocolate, caffeine, whatever that is that you think is so amazing and it's a gift from the Lord, but he doesn't go there. He goes to the best gift. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. He says, the new birth that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection bought for us is the best gift. And if he can give the best gift, all these other gifts are like a piece of cake for him. They are easy peasy. And I love this. Verse 18, I mean, we could do a whole series on just this verse. Of his own will means voluntarily. This is not, he's getting his arm twisted 
Or he's like, oh, well, I need something to do. I'll make these dumb humans. No, he goes, I'm going to make them. Why? Because I wanted to make them. Free will, voluntarily, he chose us. And then it says, he brought us forth. That's the word for give birth. So it's, it's a comparison to what we saw about sin and being born out of our evil desires. By the word of truth, that means the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That kind of first fruits gets lost on us. A better way to understand this is the first of his new family. The first of his brand new, brand new creation, brand new family, all of that. And I love that. This brought forth, this regeneration. It reminds me of John 3 when it talks about you must be born again. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, we get to be this, this gift. We get to be a part of God's family. And that is the ultimate gift. God's goodness is never changing. It is undeserved. And it is never ending. It is unending. And God's single-mindedness and how he gives us these gifts means we can be single-minded in following him. How amazing is this God? You see, we don't bring anything to this gospel story except for our wretchedness, our need for forgiveness, our terrible need for regeneration. How a complete mess we are. And yet God goes, mine, I choose them to have eternal life. I choose them to be a part of my family. And it would be one thing if he, he brought us in and he goes, all right, I got my angels and I got Jesus. Now I got some Christians and they're going to sit over here and they're going to be off on the kitty table because they're kind of the black sheep of the family. Go sit over there. Is that the promise that he gives us? Nope. He says, come to my table you are a part of my family. We have been adopted in to his family. We are a part of his new family. And again, it's, it's not like we sit there and we stick out. Because the next promise is that he's going to make us like his son. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. When we become believers, God doesn't go, good luck following the rules. See ya. See you in heaven. No. He says, I'm going to send you a helper. And that helper is going to work on you so that when we sit down at the feast with the Lamb for all of eternity, we sit there and we look like our Savior. We act like our Savior. We look like we belong because we have been adopted in. Jesus did that. The Holy Spirit comes in, cleans us up. The Holy Spirit did that. All because God did it for us. We bring nothing to the table. He does all of it. What a good God. Do you see now how James goes here and not the newborn baby and not the sunrises and not whatever all these awesome gifts that we have from the Lord? He goes to this top one because it is the gift of gifts. It is the best gift. And if this is the gift that the God of the universe is giving you, then this little trial over here, which is enormous to us, is no big deal for him. And he can turn that trial to joy. He can turn that trial into an opportunity to make us more like his son. What a good God we serve. Let's pray. God in heaven, we just absolutely are in awe of how amazing 
you are. You are such an incredible God. Lord, every time we look at this word of truth, this gospel that you have given us, Lord, I just pray that we would be astounded, that we would just fall on our knees and thank you for this gift. Lord, help us to not give in to our flesh. And Lord, thank you that we're not doing it on our own, that you are doing it in us. Allow us to be open to you even more. Help us to be a church full of people who are clinging on to you for dear life and fleeing sin and running to you. I pray we would do that together, that, that we would come together and where we are weak, we would be strong for the others and where we are strong, we would be weak. Back and forth with each another, each other, Lord. Thank you for your son and his death on the cross so that we could be here and we can feel this and, and experience this. Lord, take our worship now as we offer it up to you and be pleased. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In your name, amen.